Good morning. Glad to be up here this morning and glad to be in God's Word with you this morning. One of the things that we've been looking at recently in our sermons is the Christian life. Uh, that's been found in all of our sermons, including our ones and, and really especially in our ones in First Thessalonians. As Paul was trying to determine if the Thessalonians had what they needed to endure, were they the real deal, Paul worried. He believed they were the elect of God, but would they persevere through their challenges and trials? And so Paul was looking for evidence of their faith. And one of the things that we looked at during that was how Christians are to bring forth fruit. And Paul saw the fruit in the Thessalonian believers, didn't he? And in fact, as we looked at that text, we thought often about John chapter 15 and what Jesus says there, that if you are a branch and you are connected in his vine, you will bring forth fruit. So we need to see this process of sanctification in which we grow, but it brings up questions for a lot of modern Christians. Oftentimes, if you ask a a Christian, they'll say, well, I believe that repentance is a part of our justification, and that is true, isn't it? We repent of our sin. We recognize our need of Christ. We put our faith in Him. We throw ourselves upon the mercy of God, and we are justified when we truly believe in Him. But Repentance doesn't end at our justification, does it? It is a part of our walk of sanctification. In other words, once we are justified by faith, we are called to be sanctified by the Spirit. And so repentance is certainly a part of that as we battle sin. You know, Paul says in in Romans that we are to mortify sin in the flesh. We are to be killing sin. Well, how do we do that? We must repent. And if you think that sin will not be a battle for you as a believer, then you're fooling yourselves. Because you will see even today one of the great saints of God dealt with sin, battled sin, battled temptation. We will likewise battle temptation. Maybe not the same temptation, but temptation will surely come our way. And so we want to look today at this great psalm, Psalm 51, a psalm that is attributed to King David after his sin with Bathsheba, after he was approached by Nathan the prophet, challenged by Nathan the prophet, really challenged by Almighty God. Nathan was just speaking on behalf of God. And so David, of course, in this moment, recognizes the reality of the great and grievous sin that he's done. He recognizes that it is known to God. And he recognizes his own sorrow and repentance. This is something I think we need to look at as believers. There is a problem in the modern church. It's the numbers out there who have no repentance, no sorrow over sin, no evidence of of a life in Christ at all, but believe they're saved because some preacher told them so or because they got their name on a certificate at the end of a VBS. This tells us the proper response of a Christian to sin. We ought to be sorrowful and grieved at our sin, troubled at what we have done before a holy and righteous God. So I want to look at the text again. Let's read it together. To the chief musician... A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Listen here to the word of the Lord. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when I speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. 
Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sin, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then... They shall offer bulls on your altar. Amen. As we look at this great text today, I want us to look at three points. First of all, that David entered into grievous sin. We cannot deny it. David entered into grievous sin. Second of all, that David experienced an unbearable grief as a result of that sin. And third, that David petitioned God for his tender mercies. Starting first with the idea that David entered into grievous sin. There is no getting around it, brothers and sisters. David sinned grievously, horrifically. It's in the background of this psalm, isn't it? You can read about the atrocity in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. You know the story, I'm sure. Here we see this great man of God staying home while his army is out in the field doing battle. Many people have pointed out this is the first error that David made, maybe even the first sin He stayed behind in the royal palace in comfort while his soldiers went out to do battle. And while his men are facing death and disaster, David strolls out over top the city, leisurely as a king. Down below on a lower rooftop, he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Now, it calls into question about Bathsheba. Why would she be bathing where she could be seen? But probably due to the lateness of the hour and the fact that she was on a rooftop, She thought she was hidden from anyone's eyes. But David sees her. David sees her and immediately his sinfulness raises up against him and within him. Now here he should have battled the temptation. Right here. My friends, if there's something you want to learn about sin, battle it at the beginning. Because it will only strengthen the more you let it have its way. If he had potentially stood against this sin here when lust first arose within him, he might have won the battle. But my friends, he doesn't. He indulges it. And it drags him to the most despicable and deadly sins imaginable. Her beauty and his desire leads him to make inquiries about her. Who is this woman? He's the king. He can find out these sorts of things, can't he? Well, this is Bathsheba, wife of Uriah. Now, we want to add to that, 
David, this is a man who's out in the field fighting for you. This is one of your soldiers, a loyal soldier. We'll learn later, later, a noble soldier, a man of character. He's fighting for you and your kingdom, and you are contemplating taking his wife. My friends, this is a terrible moment. David does not restrain himself. In fact, he uses the position that God has given him by God's grace to take another man's wife. It's his king that he can order her to come into his presence. This story will not end in ease and comfort, will it? At this point, it's already gone too far. Bathsheba conceives a child, and David panics. He panics because his sin will now be found out, he thinks. How many times do we do something we know is wrong and, and then we're in a panic on how we can hide it, how we can cover it up? David is now here at that moment where he must hide his sin. He calls Uriah home from the battle thinking this is brilliant. Of course, he'll go in and stay with his wife. And as a result of that, it'll look like it's his child and not mine. And yet there's another detail here, isn't there, that puts David to shame. Uriah the soldier will not even go into his own home to sleep at night because he would deny himself comfort while his brothers at arms are out in the battlefield. If only David had thought like that, we wouldn't be in this mess. If only David had shown that much honor and respect for those around him, but instead, while his own men are out in the field battling, David not only stays in the royal bed, he takes one of his soldiers' wives to that bed. Brothers and sisters, the noble behavior of Uriah is really another finger pointing in condemnation toward David's behavior here. So David's scheming has not worked, has it? Uriah will not go in, so there is no hiding of the sin here. This only opens the door to greater sin. How often, brothers and sisters, do we find that in trying to cover one sin, we go to greater sins? We have to recognize this is not the fruitful path for a Christian. David should have battled this from the onset. When he went too far, he should have repented and stopped there. But now he contemplates murder. He sends a, leader, a letter excuse me, to his trusted captain, Joab, giving instruction for a plan to kill Uriah. You all know the story. Even makes Uriah carry his own letter of his own death sentence, basically. He makes him carry it and give it himself. I wonder if David realized on that rooftop, in that moment of initially looking upon this woman and lusting after her, if he realized all the sin that it would pull him into. Brothers and sisters, I think the repentance we see in this psalm says that David, if he could go back, would do it differently. In fact, that's what repentance means to turn away from what he has done, to turn away from what you were doing, to go in a new direction. It isn't repentance if you would do it again. It's sorrow over getting caught, perhaps, but it isn't repentance. David recognizes now, looking back at all the trouble that was started with just this moment of looking upon a woman and lusting after her. This initial lust led to so many evils. The abuse of power that God had given David led to adultery, It led to murder, lying. 
My friends, this is not some pagan king. This is King David. Noble King David, the Lord's servant, the one after God's own heart. He's the one who did this. And it started by indulging an initial lust. It escalated very quickly. And once Uriah is killed, David believes that maybe he's concealed this. Concealed this from the eyes of the nation. Concealed this from all those who would know what happened. But there is one who knows. There is one from whose eyes you cannot conceal your sin. And my friends, that will bring David to our second point, an experience of unbearable grief. If we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, this is a text that's very familiar to us, but I want to read it anyway. Starting at verse 1, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. It was precious to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel before the son so David said to Nathan I have sinned against the Lord and Nathan said to David the Lord also has put away your sin you shall not die however because this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord, to blaspheme. The child who is born to you shall surely die. Now, my friends, that is a famous text. We know it well. But there's a lot there to think about, isn't there? The weight of this moment as David recognizes his sinfulness and that the Lord has seen it. The prophet of God has come and declared unto him the things that he has done, has declared to him the judgment that will surely fall upon him as a result and the punishment is 
serious. And my friends, we recognize why it's serious. David has done a grievous sin. In fact, he's done multiple grievous sins. And he's done them all before the Lord. Nathan comes on behalf of the Lord and lays bare the entire atrocity. Lays it all bare. In this parable, David hears of a man so callous as he would preserve his plenty by taking the only one that mattered to his neighbor. In some ways, the parable that Nathan tells us kinder than what David actually did because in the parable, the rich man doesn't kill his neighbor. In reality, David stole from his and murdered the man. My friends, this is a heinous crime. Heinous crime. David recognizes the parable, doesn't he? He doesn't recognize it's him, but he recognizes that justice must reign, that justice must be served. He says, whoever this man is, he must surely be put to death. God's law would demand it. God's law would demand it. My friends, David reveals, excuse me, Nathan reveals the truth, doesn't he? Nathan says, you want to know who this man is, David? You are the man. Though God has blessed you with so much, though you have been blessed abundantly, God has given you a kingdom. He's expanded your kingdom. He's given you everything someone could want, and yet you took the one thing another man had, and then you murdered him. God's law demands what you said it does, David. But Nathan tells him, God will spare your life. Although judgment is coming, judgment is coming. David doesn't deny it. David recognizes it instantly. He recognizes that he has sinned against the Lord. He says it, doesn't he? He says it. For I have sinned against the Lord. He begs immediately for mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God. Against you and you alone have I sinned. My friends, David recognizes the the calamity that he has brought himself into. He recognizes the great sin that he has committed. He's brought into the depths of grief over that sin. We see that in our text today. Now what I want us to remember here is this. David has not fallen into this sin as an unbeliever. He has fallen into this great sin as a believer, one of God's servants. In fact, God's greatest servant, it would seem, in this age, doesn't it? He's a man after God's own heart. David recognizes that he must repent. He must repent before God. And if David must repent, then how much more or how much equally should we repent when we fall into sin? It's set here as a a pattern. We are to repent when we've sinned. If you look at verse 3, you see David acknowledged this. I acknowledge my transgressions, he says, and my sin is always before me. You recognize that? You must admit your sin before you can repent of it. David says, I acknowledge that I have sinned, and my sin is always before me. I can't get it away from me. Everywhere I look, I see it. I see the evil that I have done. It is a grievous sin. And David says, before you and you only have I sinned. And many people say, well, wait a minute. What about Bathsheba? 
What about Uriah? What about even Joab, drawing Joab into murder? But you see, David recognizes something, doesn't he? All sin is first and foremost a sin against God's holiness. It's a breaking of his law, a breaking of his justice. David recognizes even before he sinned against another human being, he has sinned against a holy and righteous God. And he is grieved by it. Grieved by the depths of his own depravity, realizing that sin is not simply an action, but part of who he is as a fallen creature. You see that in verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in, my, in sin my mother conceived me. My friends, here David is explaining what we all know about the stain of original sin on human beings. David recognizes it. God desires truth in the inmost part, David says in verse 6. And yet what is found in David? Deception and evil and murder. Now he might try to deny that, but his actions have shown it. As great as his grief is over his sinful actions, what David is most grieved at, if you look at the text, is his grieving of the Spirit, his being distanced from God. If you read it carefully, you'll see that David has lost, <clears throat> has lost his joy before the Lord. This does not mean that David is cast away. It doesn't mean that David is cast away, but one of the consequences of sin is what? It grieves the Spirit. It grieves the spirit. I've mentioned John Owen's book many times, The Mortification of Sin. And that book has so many great things to inform the believer on this battle with sin that takes place in our lives as Christians, redeemed by Christ's blood, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. But in this book, he gives many details about the way sin wages war on you. And it does. Uh, much like Paul, John Owen in that book describes sin as a force. Sin is trying to work itself out. It's trying to uh, bring you under its power and captivity. Of course, by God's grace, we are freed from sin when we are justified. We are freed from the power and slavery of sin when we are justified in Christ. But we're not glorified yet. We're still battling sin. That's why Paul tells us to mortify sin in the flesh. One of the things that we see here is that as we sin or fall into sin, sin strengthens within us. And not only that, but the spirit is grieved. And that makes us more susceptible to falling into sin the next time. If you think you're in a bad spot to battle sin today, if you give in to it, tomorrow will be harder. The next day will be harder. We must train ourselves to do battle against sin, to kill it in the flesh, give it no place in your life. My friends, David should have listened to that. David should have thought about that. If David had given no place to lust on that rooftop, none of what followed would have happened. And, bro and brothers and sisters, if you read the history here, you know the grief that is caused in David's life as a result. His joy has been taken from the Lord. You'll see that in his language of being purged by hyssop. He desires to be purged by hyssop. Now that's a clear reference to leprosy, isn't it? Now, isn't it interesting that David compares his spiritual condition to leprosy? Now, we don't have time to go into it this morning, but you can read Leviticus 14 to find out a lot more about leprosy and, 
and the way it was viewed in the Old Testament. But that's what David compares his spiritual condition to. Why? Because it best describes being cast out, being isolated, being rejected. David feels as though he is a man isolated from God, cast out of God's presence, rejected by God. The leper couldn't even enter the temple. The symbolic presence of God amongst his people. He was an outcast from society. The leper had no part in the religious life of Israel. In fact, as you all know, if a a leper even approached people, he had to yell out, I am unclean, I am unclean. David must have felt very much like that. David has come to understand fully the unclean nature of sin and what it has brought him into. He allowed it. He took the steps. But my friends, it is devastating how far you can fall fast under the sway of sin. David knows the unclean nature of sin. He feels that he's been removed from the presence of God. Even after knowing all that he will lose in earthly terms, it's been laid out to him the the things that he will suffer. Nathan has told him, and yet what is it he is most concerned about in this psalm? Restoring his fellowship with God. That's what he seems to be most concerned about. It was weighing unbearably upon him. In fact, if you think about it, it's one who is most closely fellowship with God who would feel that the most. We spoke in Holy Week about Christ at Gethsemane. And if there is a way, take this cup from me. Christ knew the awful weight he was going to bear upon himself for our sin, not his own. He was sinless. But he knew the weight that he would bear. He knew that that moment would come when he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is no one who could more closely know the fellowship of God than one within the Trinity. So David isn't on that level, but David has walked very closely with God. God has loved David and treated David very specially, as it says in this text, hasn't he? I've given you so much, he says. I've given you so much. Nathan, speaking for God, says, I've given you a kingdom. I've given you wives. I've given you every every, uh, set of riches you could imagine. If you wanted more, just ask for it. David recognizes none of that stuff matters now. None of that compares to that walk with the Lord. Of feeling his closeness and his presence to feeling uh, that relationship that we have to Christ, to our great Savior. This is the greatest source of grief for David and should be for us when we're in unconfessed sin. It's so serious that David figuratively speaks in verse 8 as what? Look at it. He says, make me hear joy and gladness. In other words, bring back joy and gladness to me, O Lord, that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. David feels the... uh, punishing of the Lord if you will or the chastisement of the Lord so distinctly that he says it's almost as if you have broken my bones he says Lord bring back joy that even those bones that have been broken might rejoice in you his brokenness is evident in this 
David is a man broken by the weight of his sin, the consequences of his sin. He looks at the lives that have been shattered by a stupid choice. How many other lives have been ruined by a stupid momentary choice? Many much like David's. A glance at uh, another man's wife or a, a woman that's not your wife or a man that's not your husband. But how many other things? Drugs or just bad decisions. My friend, David's brokenness is evident in this text. And that brings us to our final point. And that is David petitioned God's tender mercies. You know, we fall into sin. We are human beings. Now, we are not under the power of sin. It is not, uh, in essence, our slave master any longer in Christ Jesus. But we will sin. We will fall into sin. This is dealt with throughout the scriptures. But David, having fallen into this terrible situation of sin and despair, what will he do? He will call out to God. In fact, this psalm is written of his calling out to God. He will call out to God not for justice. Justice would be his condemnation. He will call out for mercy, unmerited grace, unmerited favor. He will call out for God's mercy upon him to spare him. He only appeals for grace. God, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me, O God, a sinner. A grievous sinner. Deal with me according to thy tender mercies. Not just mercy, O Lord. Your tender mercies. Your tenderest of mercies. As a father, love me and deal with me in tenderness and kindness and in love. Take my great sin and blot it out of the ledger. Blot it out so that you'll never see it again. As it's written elsewhere, take it as far as the east is from the west. Wash me clean as only you can. Purge me from this spiritual leprosy. Wash me whiter than snow. And turn your face away from my transgressions, O God. Listen to verses 12 and 13. This goes to the heart of what we've been talking about. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Lord, before this terrible decision that I made, before this terrible sin that I fell into I had a joy in you restore to me that joy the joy of your salvation the joy of knowing you of being yours of being saved by your grace that joy that I felt knowing all of that and uphold me by your generous spirit he wants that back and he says I will teach transgressors your ways Uh, And sinners will be converted to you. I will work steadfastly as a witness to your grace. He prays that God would deliver him from his blood guilt, from the stain of what he has done. And David knows that he can do nothing to atone for what he's done by human hands. He says that here, doesn't he? If it was so simple that I could go to the temple and offer a sacrifice and all would be made right, I would do it. But it's not that easy. It's not that easy. I wish the people in Isaiah's day would have recognized this, right? Isaiah chapter 1 is about this very thing, a people who have fallen into great sin, and yet what they do is they just come and offer sacrifices. 
They run through the motions. David has enough spiritual insight to recognize that's not going to get me out of this. Writing a check to the church, doing some deed of service does not right this wrong. No sacrifice can atone for what I have done if it isn't matched by a broken and contrite heart and spirit. You know, the sacrifice was just the externalization of what was supposed to be found inside the heart. You offered the sacrifice recognizing that it was an external display of your internal repentance. In fact, many people are troubled by the imagery, aren't they, of the sacrifice as you would take an animal in and it would be slaughtered. I mean, it would be killed right there before you. Arthur Pink once said that it was intended that way. If you read this and you kind of shrivel back or repel from it, he says that's what it's intended to do. It's intended to be a visual display of the cost of your rebellion against God, the cost of your sin. My friends, David says, even if I would go down there and offer those sacrifices, if it's not from a contrite heart, it's worthless. It's just the taking of an animal's life. And so he recognizes that he must have a contrite heart and spirit, a broken heart and spirit. My friends, one of the great truths of the scriptures is, also found, by the way, in Leviticus 14, on the idea of leprosy, there is restoration possible. There is restoration possible. God is a merciful God. God is a loving God, a kind God. We all deserve wrath. And yet those who come before him in repentance, begging for his mercy, will find a God who is most merciful. You want evidence of that? Here it is. Here is David. Deserves to lose at the least his his throne. According to the law, deserves to lose his life. He throws himself upon the mercy of the Lord. He cries out, O God, do not long cast me off from the joy of knowing you, from the joy of fellowshipping with you. Take these bones which you have broken and set them, that even my broken bones may rejoice in you. Because even if I cannot stand today in your presence, soon I will, one day I will, and that promise is enough. What great sin we read about in David's life. What great grief we read about as he thinks about his sin. But what great mercy we find in our glorious God. I want to close this morning by saying that David's life, and particularly this episode, is a model for us, isn't it? We may feel that we can't enter into sin as grievous as David does here, but we're fooling ourselves. Given the opportunity, we are a people who uh, find ourselves in every way falling into sin. Now, maybe the temptations David faced are not our temptations. Maybe they're not mine. Maybe they're not yours. Maybe they are. But my friends, we need to always be on the lookout for sin. If we feel we are not susceptible to sin, we are fooling ourselves. It's ready to pounce. John Owen, who we quoted earlier, said, Sin is never less quiet than when it seems most quiet. It's always looking for us to indulge it so that it can rear up and strike against us. Owen said that as we indulge sin, it wants to work itself out to the fullest extent possible. My friends, if you think that it cannot happen in your life, then you're wrong. You've got to be battling it. You've got to be putting it to death, mortifying it in the flesh. 
And so, my friends, we need to recognize, though, that from time to time, uh, we're going to recognize that we sin, hopefully not as grievously as David. I would pray that none of us would sin as grievously as David, but we're going to sin. We're going to say something we shouldn't have said. We're going to do something we shouldn't have done. So what do we do when that happens? Well, this text tells us that we need to go to the Lord in repentance. Without it, we grieve the Spirit. Our fellowship is hindered. It weakens us and makes us more susceptible to falling into sin again. So we see here what we need to do. We must go to the Lord, but we must also mortify sin in the flesh. We can't just have the strategy of we'll just continue to sin and we'll just ask for forgiveness. It doesn't work that way. As Christians, we are called to battle sin. And so to do that, we must trust the Word of God, be in the Word of God, stand against sin, battle it at the earliest moments, put on the full armor of God in order to stand in the day of testing and never indulge sin, not even for a moment. But if and when we sin, We must run to Jesus. We must run to Jesus and confess our sins, trusting only in his grace, only in his grace. Only then can our broken bones rejoice, and only in Christ. Battling sin and repenting when we fail is a key to our walk of sanctification as we recognize the great grace of our God and we come to him in repentance. And by the way, we'll continue to do that until that great and glorious day when we shuffle off this mortal coil and enter into his presence forevermore. Amen.